This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores that can turn your customer support into a private center. Join brands like Olipop, Death Witch Coffee, and Steve Madden, who have reduced their response times and increased efficiencies by using Gorgeous. Stay tuned after the episode where Rohan from the Gorgeous' team gives three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Ray Ma, who is the founder of Tech Buzz China and helps funds identify tech investments in both the US and China. Tech Buzz China is a podcast and community for those interested in China tech. I've been such a fan of Tech Buzz China for a long time and learned so much about e-commerce innovation and all that's happening in the East from Ray. As you might be thinking, we're gonna be discussing Chinese crossover brands in this episode and talk about C2M businesses and how supply chains have changed over the past few years. Without further ado, here's Ray. Ray, thank you so much for joining me today, especially on a Friday. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's sunny and warm here and yeah, it's great. Yeah, same here. Same here. Well, I'm really excited to dive in. I want to talk originally, just from the very beginning, what was your initial attraction to technology and also focusing on, you know, on startups or early stage companies? Yeah, I think technology is really just because my parents are both engineers. So I didn't really think much about it. You know, we were immigrants to the U.S. My parents really didn't have any other friends besides engineers. And I don't think I was even aware of other professions until after I graduated college. Yeah. And and so I ended up, however, not, not being a great engineer. I studied electrical engineering, computer science in college, not wasn't great at it. So when I graduated, I ended up pivoting into finance, but was still pretty much like, oh, I want to stay in Silicon Valley and work on tech. Cool. That's awesome. I mean, I know you've worked as a investor for a long time. What propelled you to start and found Tech Buzz China? 
That's a really good question because I think initially, uh, so for me, my background went from doing financial advisory on the investment banking side into investing. That was just kind of natural. Actually, my first investing job was in real estate and that was just like a internal transfer within the bank I was at. I didn't even really think too much about it. When I started getting more into venture, that was really just because I was looking at what a lot of my friends were doing and getting really excited, even though I was based in China, that they were all these people doing startups in Sil- back in Silicon Valley. And I thought, hey, that looks more exciting than the late stage sort of tech and media investing I was doing. Not that that wasn't fun. That was definitely fun and eye-opening in its own way. But I just really got excited about startups. And when the opportunity came about to do early stage investing, I went and did that. And that was mostly in China, actually. When I returned back to Silicon Valley, I wanted to have more of a narrow focus versus the generalist job I was doing before. And I was thinking of focusing on mental health. But, you know, China tech just kept on pulling me back. Partly it was just because I knew so many people who always had questions for me on this space. So I never really fully pulled myself away from it. And as I was observing the ecosystem changing, it made me realize that the progress that was being made over there was actually just a lot faster than I realized, basically. You moved back in the U.S. like 2015, is that right? Exactly. So I moved back at the at very end of 2015. And then for the whole next year, I pretty much traveled there about maybe probably up to 50% of the time. And because I was still doing a lot of the China business. So I would say I sort of really fully extricated myself. I would say my work experience in China really ended at the end of 2016. Then I sort of took my foot off of the gas pedal for the next year or so. But in 2018, you know, I just started doing a podcast sort of for fun. It actually was super random. The founder of Pandaily is a friend, asked me what he should do to get more readers. And I said, there's this thing called podcasts. Have you considered that? (laughs) You know, six months later, he comes back to me. He's like, I didn't find anyone to do the podcast. Can you do it? So that's how I started. That's awesome. That's awesome. I really do love your podcast. It's so, so helpful uh, to learn a lot more about the China technology scene, which is, of course, so exciting and has been so exciting uh, the past 10, 15 years. I wanted to understand just since you travel so much back and forth between China and the United States, what are some of the differences in consumer behavior that you've noticed between the two countries? Right, because this is this is a consumer podcast after all. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think one of the first things, you know, people probably want to think about is that uh, China, even though in the press, a lot of the stories that you hear about really positions China as sort of this very developed place. And that's not untrue, right? If you go to Beijing or Shanghai, these are some of the most developed cities, you know, metropolises in the world with basically everything you can think of that you would be able to find in Manhattan or Paris or London, whatever. These are these are all mega cities. However, there's a very large portion of China that is still very much acts like a developing economy. And because the population of China is so big, then what I usually do as a rough divide is like 400 million people along the coast that are living lives that, you know, here in the West, you would probably recognize. But there's another entire 1 billion people that are probably living lives very differently from what you would recognize. And partly that is because they just have less income. The implications of that is... Uh, Less income means a lot of the infrastructure 
uh, hasn't been built. A lot of the brands that you're familiar with, uh, a lot of the businesses, you know, types of businesses that you're familiar with probably just hasn't penetrated to that portion of the population yet because it doesn't make business sense for those brands, right? Like it doesn't make sense for Starbucks to go to a six-tier city or a village in China, for example. But the other thing is that as a result of the infrastructure not being there, then the behavior and the knowledge of the consumers is also very different. They're not familiar with these types of businesses and they don't have the habits, right? If you don't have nice shopping malls around you, then you don't really know what that experience is like. So what happened in China because of the internet is that for some of these more remote places, they kind of leapfrog that. So they still lack in a lot of the physical retail that we have here in the States, but they have access fully to you know, the online retail ecosystem. No, yeah. And that also explains too why China, when it comes to e-commerce in many ways, it's ahead of the United States, right? Exactly, because it kind of has to. Exactly, because it kind of has to. Because I'd imagine it too, just everything is also so spread out as well in China that of course, really you're able just through e-commerce to have a lot more access. And really that's obviously a necessity. What are some of the current macro trends that um, you're currently looking at? Of course, you know, we've talked on the show, like the rise of Pindodo, for example, in the past three years. And I'm curious, what are maybe like the macro trends that you're seeing in China that you're particularly find um, interesting that could be maybe like the next Pindodo, for example? Well, interesting you mentioned that because Pindodo is a platform, right? That was founded in 2015, you know, realistically really 2016 is when it starts taking off. And if you ask all the investors and entrepreneurs in China, and I largely agree with them, the time for making new platforms is actually over. So the big trend in China right now is that people are like, the infrastructure has been built, the digital infrastructure, right? Now it's time to build brands. So that's what everyone's doing now. If you look at the platforms that have been built, there have been four major new digital platforms. Uh, Pinduoduo, WeChat, mini programs, Kuai uh, Show and Douyin. These are the the latter two are short video platforms, much like you know TikTok here in the U.S. Actually, Douyin is the Chinese version of TikTok, and the GMV last year of these four platforms, who are by the way all five years or younger, um, exceeded six hundred billion dollars GMV uh, last year. That is to put it in perspective about twice of Amazon's global third-party marketplace. I'm using the numbers for GMV because that's what's disclosed. Um, it is important to note that you probably have to take a haircut to it, big cut to it, to get the true um, volume net of returns. But again, for just the last five years, that's a really, really significant amount of volume, of dollar volume that's moving across these four super new platforms, right? So it's really changed how Chinese businesses are are being built. These are all mobile native platforms, and these all reach pretty much every one of the billion or so Chinese consumers online. And now the big trend really is to build brands on, on top of these platforms, leveraging the infrastructure that's already been built out. 
Got it. So now you have a very robust infrastructure. And so now you're building actually like the top layer, which is on on the brand piece. What types of brands are Chinese companies creating? And what has been the consumer response to uh, to Chinese brands? Are Chinese consumers more open to trying Chinese brands versus Western brands that maybe are traditionally, which kind of are like the brands of the world, if that's fair to say, um, in a traditional manner? Like how are Chinese brands uh, perceived? Basically, the two main types of Chinese brands that are being built out, one is sort of more primarily offline. So think of competitors to Starbucks. Think of competitors to McDonald's, you know, or basically fast casual restaurants. There's a ton of these companies being funded, ramen uh, shops, you know, coffee shops, et cetera. Then there are ones that are more predominantly online. They're not, by the way, purely online. Uh, So you have brands kind of like uh, a great example would be Perfect Diary is a newly public listed company that sells cosmetics. Most of their sales really started off online, but in the last year they've started building offline experiential shops as well, much like you see DTC brands do so here in the US, like Warby Parker has obviously offline stores as well, right? So that's happening. For Chinese brands and how Chinese consumers view them, I would say that in the past, let's call it two years, there's been a lot more willingness of Chinese consumers to see these domestic brands as being higher quality. Prior to that, so for example, when I left the country in 2016, it's definitely a huge gap between the perception and quality between domestic brands and foreign brands. And most people, especially for sensitive things like skincare, and I think that's actually still true today, although that is diminishing. Uh, yeah, if you have something you want to put on your face, you want to go with a foreign brand because there's just more trust in the uh, type of ingredients and the quality insurance that's going in. That's changed, though, like I said, in the last two years. So number one, uh, there is a growing sense of nationalism. That's true because the Gen Z that's growing up these days have not experienced really a poor China right? Especially in the urban areas. So again, yes, there are the 1 billion people that are living in relatively more impoverished conditions. But if you are, you know, someone who grew up in the first, second, third tier cities in China, you've actually led a pretty comfortable life. And you don't have this impression that like foreign brands are better than Chinese brands. The second thing is that the Chinese brands themselves have definitely improved. So China has been the world's factory for the past couple decades, really. And Chinese manufacturers make the goods for all the top brands now in the world, right? For most categories of consumer goods that you can think of. Therefore, these manufacturers have really upgraded their skills from being just OEMs, being just taking care of the manufacturing to now where they're actually taking care of design and they know how to make really high quality stuff. So what you're seeing is that Chinese brands are now just going to those manufacturers and basically putting some marketing and maybe some of their own design on top of it. But they're because they have access to the same suppliers, I am finding that the goods I'm getting are definitely meeting my expectations. In terms of the authenticity part, it's not so much authenticity. It's more like that they are inserting Chinese cultural elements into it. So two predominant trends stand out. One is appealing to sort of like 
ancient China, what I would call sort of classical Chinese culture. So Perfect Diary was one brand I mentioned earlier. They do not do that, but they have a very strong competitor called Florisys, who basically is a cosmetics brand that really leverages Florisys is a cosmetics brand that really leverages like ancient ideals of Chinese beauty and all their design is based on, you know, old palaces, calligraphy, you know, scrolls, stuff like that. So that that is one way. The other way is appealing to sort of more recent nostalgia. So there's, especially for people who are millennials or even, even younger, to be honest, right? There is this, I would say for the world over, there is this fondness for the 80s and 90s. And in China, that's definitely true because it was seen as sort of a more innocent time, but also very you know, on the cusp of change. And and then of course, the people who are able to spend money today, that's when they grew up and childhood is always, you know, warm and fuzzy. So there is a lot of, there are are a lot of brands leveraging that as well. Are you also seeing when when you're seeing some of these upcoming uh, DTC Chinese brands, if they're staying in one particular vertical or one particular category, or if they're being more cross category? Okay, so I think right now most of them are staying in category, but category, I, I don't mean like super narrow, right? So we can already see that the cosmetic spreads are getting to skincare. That is technically considered a different category, I guess, um, by some analysts. But I would say the, the most important thing to realize is that everyone is going into um, that no categories off limits, right? So one of the more hot companies in China right now, actually just wrote about them for TechCrunch is called Genki Forest and they are doing bottled beverages, which is, I feel like not very sexy, but when you look at China, you realize that the local brands have like actually in in a way left open a white space when it comes to sugar-free or low sugar, especially carbonated beverages, but, but actually across the board, sort of more health, healthily branded beverages. um, There are some opportunities. So you see this brand uh, just five years old, now $6 billion valuation, hoping to hit a billion dollars in revenue this year going after this category. What's interesting about them is that, remember earlier I said the, there are these very high penetration, pretty sophisticated digital marketplaces and platforms, right? The, the four I mentioned. And they are building on top of these as well as Alibaba. And um, they're selling their bottled beverages. About 30% of them are actually being sold online. So I think that's the most important thing when you think about uh, Chinese new brands, consumer brands, Everything is being tried, but the second thing is that because e-commerce is so strong, categories you wouldn't expect to succeed online are actually doing so in a big way. That's really interesting because we talk a bit about on this show, I've I've interviewed entrepreneurs who started off day one being cross-category and then not being able to, had a hard time raising from investors because they really wanted them to specialize first and, and had like a couple SKUs that were, you know, bestsellers, for example, instead of releasing a wide range of SKUs that were in across different categories. So that is really interesting to hear. I, I remember you said this on one of your podcast interviews about how there's this rise of these tech company-like CPG brands. What do you actually mean by tech company-like? So the company that I just gave you, Genki Forest, is actually a perfect example of this, right? So they're taking what is a pretty traditional industry, 
uh, my understanding, like CPG companies, and then they're applying like an um, internet product development mentality to it. So number one, they really, really try to make everything as data-driven as possible. So a great example would be, remember earlier, I was saying they sell a lot of things online. So that is a little bit unique to China because I do want to emphasize that logistics costs are very low in China. So it enables you to do this. But second of all, um, even for their offline products, you know, it took them a while to really get into the offline retail distributors. But they're now pushing out something like 80,000 smart fridges where, you know, the mom and pop shops that hold their inventory, they can get real-time feedback on when their goods are being sold and what is being sold. So they really want to, even for the offline channels, to be able to treat it like online, right? And in terms of online distribution, of course, they're doing all the same things that you expect every DTC brand to do, which is you know, fake door advertising, uh, A-B testing, et cetera. Uh, and they are actually using their offline uh, online channels as sort of a testing ground. They don't really put push out more products until the online channels have shown that this product is worth, you know, going to the expense of pushing out offline. So I think... That's what I mean by using sort of an internet mentality for products, being as data-driven as possible. Of course, it's not going to be the same manipulating atoms as you do, you know, reprogramming bits. It's also interesting, too, because it seems like going offline then is not as big of a risk as it would be maybe in the States, where, you know, I talk to brands here in the United States that say, you know, the biggest risk of, of course, going to retail is then you have the shipment and that shipment's there for for months, right? You can't change out different type of SKUs. You can't try out different products. And so you're actually really minimizing that risk it seems that you're able to do because you have such these such fast feedback loops and, and you're able to actually put products a lot more. I mean, um, logistically it sounds, but oh, that's, that's really, really interesting how it doesn't seem like there's as much risk selling offline as they're in offline because you have these such fast feedback loops, if that's fair to say. I would say, you know, obviously there's still a lot of risk, but yes, it's probably a little bit better. And just to elaborate a little bit more on the SKU part, most of the DTC Chinese brands right now are seeing actually the number of SKUs they can push out as an advantage. So most of them will actually like market themselves as being high number of SKUs. So Perfect Diary, for example, has on average something like twice the number of SKUs in US or foreign a cosmetics brand will have. Shein, of course, the ultra fast fashion brand is something like 3000 plus a day. That's, you know, they're, they're really an outlier. Um, but even Genki Forest, the drink company I was talking about earlier, in five years, they've launched, you know, about 50 SKUs. That doesn't sound like a lot, but if you compare them to other drink brands, that's actually uh, quite a bit more. That and they are constantly changing their packaging as well. So they were giving me the example of one of their um, energy drinks. It was just launched last year, but they're already on the third iteration of packaging. And they showed me like all, all the packaging and they actually look really, really different. But again, a lot of these things, I think it's just a little bit unique to China. It's just so much easier when you're really close to the supply chain to do things like that. Like VC was telling me how... He also invests in a beverage company and the time it takes for them to change the bottling is just six days from design to mass production. So 
that's not that's not really as easy to do if you're halfway across the world. Yeah, wow, that's quite amazing. So you really do have these fast supply chains so you can really iterate and test just as you do in software. And so you're able to create a number of tests by introducing a lot more SKUs. If you're an aspiring brand in China also, like what are maybe some of the differences were to approach the Chinese market versus, for example, if you were selling in the US? I mean, the US, for example, probably you start off with like a Shopify site, you'd probably start selling, you know, via your own channel, market on Instagram, social media. What is that kind of process or like roadmap um, for a Chinese brand that it might be quite different? The first thing that's really different is that you probably aren't doing a Shopify. Uh, <laughs> store. Yeah. And that's just because the concentration of power on the in just the top two marketplaces, actually, Alibaba and JD alone is over 80%. Actually, it used to be over 90%, but now it's over 80%. Of all total e-commerce in China, there just isn't really the room for you to create sort of your own of your own channel. People are starting to do that. And people have now, you know, WeChat groups, WeChat official accounts, mini programs, and their own native apps, of course, that they're trying to do. But, you know, relatively speaking, what Amazon's like 35, 40% of US e-commerce, and then no one after that, you know, you basically like no one really gets you to 50%. It's not, not two single players can get you to 50% very easily. But in China, you have just like two players. You have actually just one player, Alibaba, will get you alone to over 60%. So I think that is a huge difference. And in fact, when I say DTC and direct to consumer, my friends at Alibaba have corrected me. They were like, you mean just a Taobao brand, right? Because the concept of, yeah, direct-to-consumer there actually, even today, really means, are you a bestseller in your category on Taobao or Tmall, which are the two Alibaba assets? <laughs> yeah, that's very, very different. In terms of other things, I would say, you know, for new brands, the tactic basically would be, like I said, dominate your category as first or second, maybe third place for the two shopping festivals in China, Singles Day in November or June 18th, which is JD's shopping festival. That's basically how you get yourself to be well-known. The other thing is in China, uh, the use of uh, live streaming e-commerce is now also very common. So what people don't realize is that live streaming e-commerce in, in China is actually utilized primarily by brands. And so especially if you are an existing brand, you want to push out some new products or you want to have some promotions, then you use live streaming e-commerce. But if you're a new brand as well, you want to basically pay money to have your product be featured by, you know, some of the top live streamers. And just to give you an idea of how big these live streamers are, the top two in China last year both did over 3 billion USD in GMV. And these are just like two individuals. One's a woman, she's number one, Via, and then one's number two, this guy named Austin. So they both did over $3 billion by themselves. Wow, that is fascinating. And of course, I know in the US, live streaming is still very, very, very small. Um, how did live streaming seem to grow so fast in China in, in the past few years? I would say the main reason is because the biggest player in e-commerce, Alibaba, really put a lot of their resources into it and heavily incentivized everyone in their ecosystem to do live streaming e-commerce. And that's because about five, six years ago, they adopted the strategy where they decided that 
all e-commerce is content. So Jack Ma is fond of saying this. And what he really means is that e-commerce by itself isn't a natural generator of traffic, right? You aren't, you know, sitting there at your computer thinking like, oh, I just want to go to Amazon and hang out there or something. It's a very sort of destination-driven activity. And he realized that that makes it very expensive to acquire traffic. So he needed to find ways where there was like an activity where people were doing that they were just habitually coming back and staying on the platform and then can sort of direct them to to buy things, right? And that one thing was live streaming e-commerce. So they put a lot of resources into, like I said, incentivizing their existing vendors to engage in this activity by offering them all sorts of deals. And then they also built up supply because the e-commerce live streamer is not the same sort of person necessarily someone who just, you know, live streams their games or does entertainment like singing and dancing. So they actually had all these camps and um, put together training programs. And then again, like I said, put a lot of traffic behind the people that were successful. So the two people that I was talking about earlier, Austin and Via, they actually both came out of Alibaba's camps for live streaming e-commerce yeah, training. Wow. It really was a very top, top down effort, not really like a bottoms up effort per se, in that the like the incumbents, the platforms actually made way for live streaming as it maybe having been like dead center or feature on the apps. It feels like in the States, it's a bit more of like a bottoms up type of environment that we're kind of coming into. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that could still work. It's just going to be a lot slower, right? When you have all these I don't want to call them dinky, but they are dinky, like startups, you know, series A, B startups trying to sign up, you know, your boutique shop uh, across the street. That's very, very different as opposed to what China is doing, which is Alibaba saying like, hey, guys, number one, I'm going to put this live streaming button in the middle of my app, or I'm just going to advertise it to you all the time. And I'm going to give you sellers incentives to live stream. And I'm going to give people, buyers, incentives to buy from the live stream. And by the way, I'm going to put a lot of money into training these guys into happening. So I wouldn't say it's all completely top down, but I think in general, in in Chinese society, not even just China tech, there's this belief that you don't necessarily wait for things to happen organically. You could sort of create demand or create supply as you need, right? It's very much similar to how the government runs the entire economy. It's a combination of the visible and invisible hand, if you if you want to use those economic terms, versus here in the West, we might be very much like, oh, it has to be free market. So what do you think maybe Americans might misunderstand the most about Chinese consumer technology? So I think we covered a lot of the main points, but another one I probably want to emphasize is Chinese, like online, offline, the relationship is just really different. I actually did a interview recently with um, the, the ex-head of Walmart China e-commerce, and he calls this whole thing sort of digital retail. I'm just going to steal some ideas from him because I think he very clearly articulates what this whole concept means. And the main thing you have to remember is that in China, as I was saying earlier, the physical infrastructure, except for in the you know richest parts of the country, is not there. 
right? It's not there because physical infrastructure takes a long time to build up, but it's also because there just isn't a high enough concentration of the types of consumers you want for some of the more advanced retail to want to go there, right? The example I gave earlier was like Starbucks doesn't want to go to a village, even though there are probably some people in the village who would want Starbucks, but just not high density enough. So because China is just starting to develop in the last 40 years versus U.S. offline retail had 140, 50 years to develop, then the way they even conceive of the stores is very different. The stores are typically used for both online and offline. So, you know, during the pandemic here in the U.S., people had to do in-store pickup. Well, in-store pickup is actually something that's just very common in China because the prevalence of e-commerce right? So that means when you even design the layout of the store, a store in China will look very differently in terms of where things are located, in terms of how much warehouse space it has, uh, and, and basically the entire operational flow will look different from the U.S. Another thing is that because, once again, online and offline are so merged together, the physical store experience is often very closely tied to the app experience so or the mini app experience if you're using it inside of WeChat. So for example, an offline retailer and their app probably don't have too much in common because they're developed in two different time periods and probably by two very different teams. In China, because all these things are arising at the same time, it's a much more integrated experience. So the example Jordan gave was you can use a mini app inside the store and it will correspond to the deals. It'll be personalized for you. Like, so each store, for example, the inventory, whatever, it might be uh, very accurate. Whereas in the US, that's just not not as much the case. It's obviously changing, and I think it's very much accelerated by the pandemic. But in China, that's just been how it is from the get-go. What's one book that has impacted you professionally and one book that has impacted you personally? How about I just share with you a couple books I'm reading now? I think um, one I'm reading, or I just finished, Value by Zhang Lei, who is the founder of Hill House, and he's a very notable value investor in China. Um, Hill House is probably like the largest fund in China. They started off as a hedge fund, but now they also do a bunch of private investments, including VC. Even though I already knew a lot about China, I felt like it's, I still think I learned a lot from seeing things from his perspective, which is again, from a public market investor perspective, and especially because he was so close to some of the most, you know, seminal cases um, JD, uh, Tencent, et cetera, very, very early investors and explaining what the thinking was like back then. So I feel like I can explain a lot of China these days, but you know what China was like in 2005 and what those companies, what they were facing, um, I think he does a really, really good job of explaining that. And especially at the macro level as well. A personal book I really like is Range by uh, David Epstein. And that book just talks about how there is a lot to be said for having breadth over just pure depth. Ideally, of course, you want to have both and you want to have, you know, a couple of different areas where you're kind of deep. And that's just like belief I have always had. So it was great to read a book that validated that somewhat scientifically. My final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Two pieces of advice that I really appreciate over the years. The first one is professional, and that was 
to always work in the core of a business and never the periphery. So if you had to choose between working in the core business of a smaller company versus a subsidiary or not in core business of a much larger or more influential company, you probably always pick the smaller company and, and the core. That was really helpful for me in making decisions in my career. And I think that's really played out in the amount of learning I was able to do. The second thing is personal, which is like, just take a lot of initiative. I remember for a period when I was living in Beijing, I was feeling really lonely, homesick, and just like unhappy. And a mentor of mine, or I guess I'll, I'll call him a mentor. I don't know if he considers himself my mentor, said to me, Ray, there are, you know, 15, 20 million people in the city. You were telling me you can't find like 20 smart, interesting people that could really challenge you. It's not the people's, it's not the city's fault. It's not the people's fault. It's the fault that you're too lazy and you haven't made the effort to creatively think about how you're going to find them. So I took that to heart and um, came up with a lot of activities for myself and took initiative. And I think that really turned around my life. Well, Ray, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. And there you have it. It was such a blast chatting with Ray. I highly recommend you also checking out Tech Buzz China as well and following her on Twitter. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce-focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, Things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, And what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and BigCommerce, And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help 
brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or Big Commerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all of the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things, or even one of these things, is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the DTC environment with brands, is, you know, where is my order? What's my shipping? status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to, for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that, that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. 
And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interact with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. It goes so far. And your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet, um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.